Good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, you can go ahead and turn to the Gospel of John. We're going to be working in chapter 7 today. We're going to pick up the narrative in verse 14 in a few minutes. But before we get there, I want to tell you a quick story. So on Wednesday night, I got home from, from prayer meeting, and I started to experience a little bit of chest pain around bedtime. And when I felt the, the pressure on my chest, I immediately had two conflicting thoughts in my head. There were two conflicting voices in my head. Voice one was saying, Bo, relax. You've had problems with acid reflux on and off for the last six months. You ate barbecue and chicken wings for lunch. You know you got away from your diet today, and your, your body's letting you know about it. Why don't you just take an acid reducer and, and get some sleep? And then there was voice two. Voice two said, why don't you check out WebMD? which, of course, is never a good idea. And so after about five minutes of WebMD research, I was convinced I was going to die. I read every symptom of every fatal heart condition. I was certain that I was suffering from every symptom of every fatal heart condition. As my wife and children were sleeping peacefully in their beds, I was left alone with my thoughts, and I knew that I was living out the final minutes of my life. But after a little bit of deliberation, the, the rational side of my brain finally won the day, and I decided it's probably nothing. If I have chest pain tomorrow, I'll, I'll go to the doctor. I'll drop in just to make sure. But I'm not on the edge of death tonight, so I'm just going to listen to a podcast. I'm going to try to get some sleep. That's ultimately, that's what I did. So the next morning, Lacey and I go to our new doctor's office together. She's been a couple times, but I haven't been to the new doctor since. We moved, and I didn't get off to a great start with the new doctor. After a little bit of small talk, you know, what brought you to Valdosta, that kind of thing, he asked, what brings you in today? And so I told him, I've had problems with acid reflux for the last six months, and so I probably need to talk about getting on some sort of medication for that. But I came in today because I was having chest pain. I'm pretty sure it's just the reflux, and then I made a bad joke. I said, but I want to make sure... I'm not dying. And then he made a worse joke. And he said, well, pastor, if you do die, I wouldn't worry. You know where you're going. Which is true, but it was not the best thing to say in that moment. But after an awkward start, that the doctor did a great job. He was, a, he was a professional. He ran a couple tests. He walked me through some options settled on a diagnosis, and gave me some clear instructions. You know, he ended up being an expert. But at the start of the visit, I wasn't so sure about him. At the start of the visit, I felt kind of like the patient in that new AT&T ad campaign. I don't know if you've seen it, but this man is, is sitting in a hospital bed. He's being prepped for surgery, and his wife asked the nurse, have you ever worked with Dr. Francis? And the nurse says, yeah, he's okay. And the patient says, what do you mean he's just okay? And at that moment, the doctor walks in and says, hey, guess who got reinstated? Well, not officially. Are you nervous? The patient says, yes, of course. The doctor says, yeah, me too. I wouldn't worry about it. We'll figure it out. I'll see you in there. And then the commercial ends by rightly reminding the viewer that just okay is not okay. Right? In certain situations, just okay is not okay. 
We don't want an okay surgeon. We don't want an okay doctor. We don't want an okay lawyer, an okay mechanic, an okay babysitter, an okay chef. We don't want to give our business to a person who may or may not help us. We don't want to lend our trust to a person who's trying to fake it till they make it. No, before we give our business, we want to hear about their education. We want to hear about their experience. We want to see their credentials. We want to talk to our friends about them. We want to read their Google reviews. And so as we return to the Gospel of John chapter 7, and we find Jesus teaching in the synagogue during the festival of Booths, he's going to lay out his credentials for us. His credentials for making the claims that he's making. Because his claims were astonishing. They were shocking. They were outrageous. The crowd was awestruck because Jesus was completely indistinguishable from any other man in the crowd. When they saw him teaching, they saw just another Galilean man. You know, he was born in the same region. He had the same characteristics. He spoke in the same dialect. And so on the surface, he wasn't different than any other man. But then he opened his mouth. And when he opened his mouth, they could hear the difference. When he spoke, Scripture records that they marveled. We'll get to this in a little bit, but verse 15 shows the Jews asking, how is it this man is learning when he has never studied? They had no category for Jesus. They had no reference point for Jesus. Because Jesus was making claims that no one had ever made before. You know, and we're, we're a little ways into the Gospel of John, and we've already, we've already read and studied a few of these claims. We've seen where Jesus said that he had come down from heaven, that he eternally existed, that he had been sent to the world by the Father, that he was the Savior of the world, the determiner of eternal destiny, the source of everlasting life, the only way to God the Father. That he had a right to be honored and worshipped just like the Heavenly Father. That he had the right to be one with the Father. That he had power over life and he had power to raise the dead. That he was the one the Old Testament foretold. That he had the authority to judge all men. That he had control over heaven and earth. He had the power over sin. That he was the bread of life. That he was the only source of soul satisfaction. That he was the anointed one. That he was the Christ. That he was the Messiah. That he was the Son of God. And obviously these claims were, were met with a variety of reactions. And many in the crowd reacted negatively. The Jewish leaders accused him of blasphemy. Some in the crowd were a bit more charitable. They didn't say he was a blasphemer. They just said he was insane. They said he was out of his mind. Then there were others in the crowd who were a little bit more open-minded. This would have been the group at the end of chapter 6 that actually followed Jesus for a brief period, but then departed when they ultimately couldn't accept his words. They were engaged by his miracles. They loved his works, but they hated his words. And so most reacted negatively, but a few have reacted positively. A few were drawn to Jesus through the teaching of the gospel. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Andrew said, We found the Christ, we found the Messiah. Philip said, We found him of whom Moses spoke. 
Nicodemus said, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God. The Samaritans from the little village of Sakaar concluded that this is the Messiah. This is the Savior of the world. And Peter and the disciples said, we have believed and come to know that you're the Holy One of God. Peter himself said, you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. You have the words of eternal life. And so what we're seeing in the Gospel of John is the way the Gospel separates humanity. The way the Gospel serves as a line in the sand. The way the Gospel separates the sheep from the goats. Over and over we see that when Jesus preaches the truth, some accept and some reject. Some find his words irresistible, overwhelming, and gracious. Others find his words repulsive, maddening, and irritating. Some love him, and some hate him. And so as we continue to walk through his gospel, John is driving home the point for us that there is no middle ground with Jesus. There's no fence to ride with the gospel. There are only two sides. There is no third option. When you hear the preaching of the gospel, you'll either be driven to worship or you'll be driven crazy. And so as we approach our text today, we should, we should think back to last week. At the start of chapter 7, you'll remember that Jesus' brothers were trying to get him to come to Jerusalem for the festival of booths. They told him that no one does miracles in secret. If you truly are a miracle worker, you truly are a Messiah, you know, come, come bring it to the forefront. Bring it into the public square. <clears throat> Jesus was just coming off seven months of, of focused ministry on the disciples where he was pouring into them. He was teaching them and training them and discipling them. And now he's ready to re-enter Jerusalem. So let's pick up in verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. So Jesus didn't travel with his family. And there's a simple reason for that. It's because Jesus knew that the Jewish leaders were seeking to kill him. And if he would have shown up the way they expected, in a, in a caravan with his family, they would have grabbed him at the gate, and they would have captured him, and they would have arrested him right there. So he didn't go when they expected him to go. It's verse 11. We see they're looking for him. Verse 11, the Jewish leaders say, where is he? So he doesn't go at the beginning of the week. He waits till the middle of the week. At this point, everything had settled down. Everyone had, had settled in. There was a massive crowd in Jerusalem. At this point, Jesus showed up. And so we need to see how this was really kind of a Jason Bourne, James Bond type move from Jesus. You know, when we watch an action movie, and the hero is, is on the run, a lot of times he'll slip into a massive crowd. He'll run into to Times Square or some giant festival, and he'll sort of disappear into the crowd. And the crowd sort of offers a buffer. The crowd offers safety to the hero because he knows that the, the bad guys will have trouble getting to him, and he knows the bad guys likely won't harm him in front of the crowd. And so Jesus is doing the same thing here. By showing up in the middle of the feast, first of all, he surprised the Jewish leaders. He wasn't around, and then all of a sudden he's in the temple. So first of all, he caught them off guard. But second, they were neutralized by the crowd. 
Because if they forced their way through the crowd and, and grabbed him in the middle of the temple in front of everyone and dragged him out in chains, it wouldn't have been a good look for them. You know, they couldn't arrest him in front of all of Jerusalem, so they were stuck. This was Jesus' time to speak. And, you know, his timing, as always, was so precise. This is why he told his brothers from, from the passage last week, my time is not yet here, my time is not yet fully come. He wasn't going at the beginning of the week because his time was in the middle of the week. And now he's arrived and he was in the temple and he was teaching. He was following the traditional pattern of a rabbi. At this time, rabbis would, would go to the temple courtyard, they'd find a space and they'd sit down somewhere and they'd start teaching and their students would, would, would gather around them. And so this is what Jesus is doing. He finds a place in the courtyard, and he calls class in the session. You know, we may ask, what was he teaching? Because that's all verse 14 tells us, that he was teaching. Well, he was teaching what he always taught. He never strayed from the gospel message. He was extremely consistent in his talking points. He was always on brand. So he was talking about the kingdom of God. He was talking about sin and righteousness. He was talking about the path of salvation. He was talking about the dangers of hypocrisy. He was talking about the one true way to God. And so he set up shop and he started teaching in the middle of the temple courtyard, in the middle of the feast. And he's continuing to make these claims about who he is and why he came. And so in the rest of the passage, we're given five reasons why we can believe his claims. Five reasons why we can trust his teaching. Five reasons why we can have confidence in his teaching. And so let's start with verse 14 for the first one. Or verse 15, excuse me. Verse 15 says, The Jews therefore marveled, saying, And how is it this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. So first, his teaching came from the Father. A couple years ago, I read a biography about George Whitfield, who was who lived in the 18th century and was this incredible preacher and was one of the catalysts of the Great Awakening in America. And you know, the preaching ministry of Whitfield is probably the closest modern comparison that we have to the preaching ministry of Jesus, because they both drew massive crowds and they both made their fair share of enemies. You know, one of my favorite notes from Whitfield's story is that his sermons were often sidetracked by protesters. And they didn't just, you know, wave signs outside of the gathering. They would come inside the gathering and they would throw rotten fruit and, and animal carcasses and other things at Whitfield as he was preaching. And historians say that Whitfield was never phased by this. He just kept going. And that's just unbelievable to me. I mean, it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. That if anyone threw roadkill up on the stage as I was preaching, the sermon's probably going to end right there. Right? We'll, we'll pick it up after, after that's cleaned up. I don't know how he continued to just keep going. And so he had, he had his fair share of enemies, but he also had a lot of followers, too. He preached in open fields in America to crowds of thousands. You know, one biographer records that his crowds were massive wrote in Philadelphia on Wednesday, April 6th, he preached on Society Hill twice, in the morning to about 6,000, in the evening to near 8,000. On Thursday, he spoke to upwards of 10,000. 
There are times this crowd reached 20,000 or more. It was reported at one of these events that his words were distinctly heard a distance of two miles away. Right, this was in the 1700s, so there was no amplification system. There were no microphones. This was a man preaching in the open air to tens of thousands of people, with the only instrument being his voice. And so he preached with incredible power. He was provided with remarkable spiritual gifts. He was clearly one of the greatest preachers of the modern era. He engaged thousands with the gospel. Many men and women came to saving faith through his ministry. But God used him to make a huge impact on the world. But even still, the preaching ministry of Whitfield was nothing compared to the preaching ministry of Jesus. When Jesus spoke, they marveled. They were amazed. They were awestruck. They asked, how is it this man has learning when he has never studied? Now notice they acknowledged his learning. Notice they acknowledged his knowledge. They were impressed with his command of the scriptures. See, normally when a rabbi spoke, he would expound on scripture and explain scripture by quoting other rabbis to validate his interpretation. You know, I do the same thing. When I come across a, a difficult text, I study commentaries, I read articles, I listen to sermons from pastors I trust to help validate my interpretation. And sometimes you'll hear me quote theologians and quote other pastors in my sermons this is this is what rabbis did they would they would quote each other but jesus was different jesus didn't quote other rabbis jesus didn't need others to validate his teaching he didn't follow their pattern yet his wisdom his knowledge his understanding was without equal so they asked how does this man you know some other translations say this fellow, this nobody, how does this nobody know so much? They don't use his name, which is a small dig, by the way, a small insult. They say, how is it possible for this zero to have such an incredible understanding of the scriptures? How does this uneducated man know so much about the will of God? They were dumbfounded. He's never studied with the rabbis. He didn't go to the proper schools. How does he know so much? Well, Jesus responds with a simple answer in verse 16. He says, because my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. So he essentially says to them, you're right. My teaching is different. My teaching is unique. My teaching is unlike anything you've ever heard. That's because it comes from above. That's because it's divine knowledge. That's because it's heavenly truth. Understand, I'm not relaying what I've heard from other rabbis. I'm relaying what I've heard from the mouth of God. So this is the vast difference between Jesus and other teachers. Is that the rabbis were, were bouncing ideas off each other and they're putting their own spin on the words of the Old Testament and they're twisting it and turning it to fit their agenda. But Jesus was bringing the information directly from the source. He was preaching the unedited gospel. He was the ultimate truth teller because he was preaching the very words of God. His teaching came from above. That's the first reason. Let's look at verse 17 for the second reason. It says, If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God 
or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. So second, his teaching drew his sheep. We've already seen and we'll continue to see in the Gospel of John that when, when Christ preaches the Gospel, some believe and others don't. The Gospel is the great litmus test. It's the dividing line. It, it separates humanity. In John 10, Jesus essentially says this. He says that my sheep will hear my voice and I know them and they follow. So the sheep will recognize his voice. They'll realize his teaching is from God and they'll be drawn to do the will of God. This is how salvation flows. That we're convicted by the Holy Spirit. We're overcome by our sin. We're, we're overwhelmed with our brokenness. And then we become a seeker. We become a seeker of God. Not a seeker of, of personal benefit. Not a seeker of, of personal glory. Not a seeker of, of comfort in this life. But a seeker of God. And then we submit to the gospel. And then we pursue God's will for our life. We say, I'm on the wrong side of God. I'm, I'm alienated from God. I'm an enemy of God. And, and I want freedom. I want deliverance. I want a new master. I want to follow Jesus. And so what Jesus was basically telling the crowd was if you don't recognize my teaching as the words of God, it's because your hearts are unwilling to submit to God. He's saying that submission must come before understanding. Let me see if I can explain this to you. Think about, imagine that you're walking across a frozen pond. And it's maybe hard for you to think about because this is South Georgia and we're still seeing temperatures in the high 70s in December. But there are parts of the country where it gets so cold that water freezes solid outside. And so imagine you're walking across a frozen pond and, and you see something under the surface of the pond. And so you bend down and you try to get a closer look. And you can make out a few details, but you can't be exactly sure what you're looking at. And so day after day, you return to the pond to take another look. But you can't get a clear picture because the ice on top is distorting the object just enough that you can't be 100% sure what you're seeing. And so you have two options for resolution. You know, first, you can keep coming back. You can keep looking at the object from different angles. You can come at different times of day where the sun is hitting it from, from different vantage points. Or, second, you can just break the ice. You can just break the ice and find out for certain what is underneath it. You see, our will is the ice. Until our will is broken, we'll never fully understand. If some believe that spiritual growth is, is simply about gaining more biblical knowledge, that if we attend a, a certain Bible study, if we gather more information, if we read a few books, if we spend time with a mentor, then we are growing spiritually. But we can't confuse biblical knowledge with spiritual maturity. You know, we should devote time to personal and corporate Bible study. We should read gospel-centered books. We should rub elbows with wise Christian counsel, but we can't confuse the acclamation of biblical knowledge with a growing love for Christ. See, if we fill our minds with information without gearing our hearts towards submission, we've missed the boat. And so in a way, our understanding must start with our lack of understanding. Our understanding must start with, our, with us saying, God, I don't understand everything. 
God, I, I can't understand everything, but I know two things to be true. I know that I'm a sinner and I know that I need a Savior. And so I'm asking for your mercy through the work of Jesus on the cross. See, the gospel is the test of the teaching. When Jesus spoke, the sheep heard the words of God, but the goats heard the words of a carpenter's son of Nazareth. Verse 18. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent me, of, of him who sent me is true, and in him there is no falsehood. So third, his teaching was not for his glory. Here's another reason to believe the teaching of Jesus, is that Jesus constantly sidestepped personal glory, but he consistently displayed humility. Meanwhile, every one of the, the false teachers, the charlatans, the frauds, the fakes, the hypocrites, the, the phony messiahs in the history of the world have all been in it for personal gain. They've done it for the money. They've done it for the power. They've done it for the prominence. They've done it for the attention. But while they were elevating themselves, Jesus was elevating his father. In verse 5, Jesus spoke to this very issue with the Jewish leadership. He told them, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek glory that's from the one and only God? This was the difference between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. They didn't seek the glory of God. They sought the glory from one another. They were more interested in the praise of men than the praise of God. But Jesus, on the other hand, only sought the glory of God. This is why he laid down his crown. This is why he got up from his throne. This is why he set aside everything that he was entitled to to take on human flesh. This is why he left the comfort of the kingdom for the rejection of the world. And when he came to earth, he didn't come to be served, but to serve. So he washed the disciples' dirty feet. So he hung out with prostitutes and tax collectors. So he humbled himself in love. So he bared the burdens of others. So he took no money. He took no home. He took nothing, and he gave everything. He laid down his life for us, and he did it for the glory and honor of his Father. His teaching, his miracles, his sacrifice, and his life were not for his glory. In John chapter 17, as Jesus is praying, the high priestly prayer as he's preparing to go to the cross, you know, he does ask the Father to restore him to his former glory. But up until that point, you know, he would ascend back to heaven and he'd, he'd He's sitting right now at the right hand of God. But the whole time that he's on earth, he keeps pointing the glory back to the Father. And he was not ultimately glorified until after he had been crucified. So Jesus was not in it for his personal glory. Verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? crowd answered, you have a demon. Who, who is seeking to kill you? So forth, his teaching underlined their sin. In verses 19 and 20, Jesus gets right to the heart of the matter. He says, as Moses not given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law. 
What a statement. What an indictment. He was fully aware of how much the Jewish leadership hated him. He was fully aware of how much the Jewish leadership wanted to kill him. And he still pronounced judgment upon them. He still pinpointed their sin. First he asked, hasn't Moses given you the law? And their answer would have been, of course. Yes, Moses has given us the law. I mean, according to Matthew 23, the Pharisees and the scribes sat on the chair of Moses. They, they loved him. They respected him. They fought for him. They devoted their lives to honoring his legacy. So, of course, Moses gave them the law. But then Jesus followed his question with a startling statement. He said, if Moses gave you the law, then why are none of you keeping the law? See, here he gives an accurate and comprehensive statement about human sinfulness. None of you keep the law. None of you follow the law. None of you are righteous. None of you are capable of living up to God's standard. Now, this, is, this is Romans 3. All have fallen short of the glory of God. This is... Galatians 3, if you break one law, you've broken the whole law, and you're cursed. And the, the Jews were clinging to the law for salvation, but Jesus helping them see, he's laying that foundation so they'll understand that the law was never intended to be a source for their salvation. The law couldn't save them. The law could only condemn them. The, the sole purpose of the law was to point to the cross. The sole purpose of the law was to drive sinners to an overwhelming overwhelming fear of divine judgment. The sole purpose of the law was to drive sinners to understanding their separation from a holy God so they would repent of their sin and grab hold of God's grace. But we can be certain, based on everything we've seen so far and what we'll continue to see in the Gospel of John, the Jews would have disagreed with Jesus' assessment. We can almost hear them arguing, whoa, 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 hey, what do you mean none of us keeps the law? We absolutely do. This is where Jesus lays down his final card and gets specific. He says, okay, if you keep the law, if you keep the letter of the law, then why do you seek to kill me? Their plans to, to kill Jesus were a clear violation of the Ten Commandments. Now, Exodus 20.13, thou shalt not what? Murder. And so when Jesus called out their murderous plot, the leaders were, were certainly convicted. But most of the crowd was confused. Because remember, most of the crowd was visiting from out of town. Most of the crowd were pilgrims who were only in town for the fe Feast of Booths. And so they weren't caught up on all the drama. They weren't, they weren't caught up on the tension between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. They weren't aware of their intentions to kill him. They're outside of the inner circle. And so this is why they shout out, you have a demon. You're, you're out of your mind. You're talking crazy. Who's seeking to kill you? You know, and before we give a pass to the crowd for their ignorance, we should recognize in a few months they'll show up in Jerusalem again and they'll be the ones calling for his death. They'll be the ones screaming for blood. They'll be the ones seeking to kill him. But we're not there yet. That's the next spring. That's, that's the next Passover. And so for now, they're reacting by saying, hold on, who's trying to kill you? 
well, what are you talking about? You, you have a demon. And so we, we see this rumor about Jesus for the first time. You know, if you look back in verse 12, we see part of the crowd saying that, that Jesus was leading people astray. Right? Jesus was doing the work of the devil. because The devil's ultimate goal is to lead us astray, lead us away from God. And so Jesus was doing the work of the devil. And so these were the whispers that were circulating around Jerusalem that Jesus Christ had a demon, that he was leading people away from God. And these accusations would catch fire. They would get repeated over and over again. They would spread to every corner of Jerusalem. We'll see them again in chapter 8. We'll see them again in chapter 10. So they were asking, who's seeking to kill you? But in reality, they were only one step away from it themselves. They considered themselves to be righteous. They considered themselves to be keepers of the law. But in a few short months, according to Mark 15, Pontius Pilate will ask, what evil has this man done? And they will scream, crucify. What has this man done wrong? Crucify. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate will release a criminal to them and hand Jesus over to be crucified. So they weren't law keepers, they were law breakers. And Jesus was highlighting their sin. Verse 21. Jesus answered them, I did one work and you marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a whole, man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And so finally, his teaching was supported by his works. Last week, we, we talked about how our actions can affect our gospel witness. That if we're abounding in the fruits of the Spirit, that if we're walking the walk, then our gospel witness will be better received. But if we, you know, if we meet a friend at Starbucks for the purpose of, of studying the Bible together, maybe having a gospel conversation, and we get up before we get started and we go berate a Starbucks barista because they got our order wrong, when we come back, we're not really going to have a solid foundation to build upon. Does that make sense? You know, if you go and yell at a barista and then you come back and you're like, okay, so where are we? Where were we? You know, the person you're with is not going to really want to hear what you have to say. Our actions have to line up with our words. So Jesus picked out one work. He referenced one work to prove a greater point. He cited one work, and you all marveled at it. So he's talking about the work in chapter 5, the work that started all of this drama when he healed a paralyzed man by the pool of Bethesda, a man that was suffering from 38 years of paralysis. Jesus healed him on the Sabbath, and this drove the Jewish leadership crazy because he, he worked on the Sabbath. So they couldn't deny his miracles, and they certainly couldn't overlook this one. Everyone saw it, and the Jewish leaders never denied it. And so Jesus shows in verse 22 how warped their viewpoint was. He says, Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers. 
and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. So circumcision was commanded by Mosaic law, and it stated that all male children should be circumcised on the eighth day. But it actually came, it actually came before Moses. It goes all the way back to Abraham. It goes all the way back to the 17th chapter of Genesis. This is where we see circumcision for the first time. And so Jesus asked, why do you circumcise on the Sabbath? Because it has to be done on the eighth day. Right, if a child is born eight days before the Sabbath, they'll circumcise him on the Sabbath. And so what Jesus is pointing out is that in a sense, they violated their tradition about work on the Sabbath. When necessary, they would set aside their rules about the Sabbath to follow another rule deemed more important. So Jesus asked if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a whole a man's whole body well? So we see Jesus arguing from the lesser to the greater. And we understand the ramifications of his powerful rebuke. See, if circumcision takes precedence over the Sabbath, then they had wiggle room to rewrite all the rules as they saw fit. They could allow the Sabbath to take precedence over murder. They could say, because you broke the Sabbath, we're within our rights to kill you. So they're walking down this, this, this slippery slope, this, this danger, going to this dangerous territory of, of ranking sins and classifying sins and deciding what sin is worse than another sin and what sin they can get by with. And Jesus was calling out their hypocritical approach in the public square. And he was urging the crowd to stop following, stop listening to these self-righteous, self-serving leaders and start following him. Start listening to him. This is why he says in verse 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So Christ was saying, don't be like these hypocrites. Don't judge me based on my appearance. Don't judge me based on my upbringing. Don't judge me based on my lack of education. Don't judge me back of, based on my hometown. Judge me based on my teaching. Judge me based on my words. Hear my words and make the right judgment. Because my words are the words of eternal life. If my teaching comes from my Father. My teaching draws my sheep. My teaching is not from my glory. My teaching underlines your sin, and my teaching is supported by my works. Listen to my words and make a decision. Because truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for the words of Jesus, these words that, that give us eternal life. In John 10, Jesus says that he's the good shepherd, that his sheep will, will hear his voice and they'll know him and, and they'll follow him. 
Father, we thank you for that, that gospel message that, that calls us from death to life. Father, as we come to a time of response, I pray that if there's anyone under the sound of my voice that you may be calling to eternal life, that, that they would, you would just urge them to take a step in faith today, to, to walk the aisle and come have a conversation about salvation. Father, if you're calling someone to join our church today, if you're calling someone to, to partner with us in taking the gospel to Lowndes County, I pray that they would listen to that call. Lord, you may be calling some in this room to pray for someone in their circle who doesn't know you. You may be calling some in this room to, to worship, to lift up their voice and sing this congregational song with us. So Father, I don't know how you may be working in the hearts of the people in this room, but I do know that when your word is preached, that we're called to respond. And I know that you are calling us all to respond in some way. So guide us and direct us in how you would have us respond to the preaching of your word. Lord, I thank you for this time. Lord, I thank you for your son. I thank you for his message and I thank you for his work. Lord, during this Christmas season, we are so thankful for the baby that was born in Bethlehem, that became the man that died in Jerusalem so that we may have eternal life. We pray these things in his name, because we know he is sufficient. In Jesus' name.